All right. Well, it's good to be with you together as God's people and to not only enjoy the community we share as single young adults here in Praxis, but to fellowship under the teaching of God's Word. Um, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors at Lighthouse. If this is your first time here, we're so glad that you could come and join us and visit us, and we hope that uh, you'll stick around and get to know us more. Um, but as a ministry, we have been uh, looking very briefly in our short series on the person of Jesus Christ. And we had just a, it's just a two-week series because we're entering into Christmas break. And so just a side note, we won't meet again. So after this week, we have our Christmas party and then we'll be on break until January 12th when we will finally resume our exposition of the book of Romans. Um, some of you may have forgotten that because we haven't studied the book of Romans for, oh, I don't know, maybe nine months or so. Um, but tonight is also the last night with your current small group. So enjoy that time. Say thank you to your small group leader and also sign up for the next season. But we did want to close the year by looking directly at Jesus, which is why we've grounded our two sermons in gospel narrative for our short series. We wanted to examine our Lord and Savior among the people, dwelling with us so that our hearts are enamored to Jesus Christ as we see the heart of Jesus Christ. And it's very fitting. It aligns with the Christmas season as we think, consider, and celebrate the birth of the Son of God. Tonight, we'll be examining a rebirth of sorts, a resurrection. So if you have your copy of God's word, you can flip them to John 11. John 11. We'll be focusing on verses 17 to 44. But for the sake of context, we'll start with verse 1. And I know it's a big chunk, but this is a rich passage. So follow along, and then we will pray for the Lord's help upon our time. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, all the way to 44. This is the word of God. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, 
but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of a busy season, many distractions and even the trappings of holiday cheer, we pray that your word would pierce through that you would rivet our attention upon Christ. Because even as we have just read, there is a weightiness and gravity to this story. For in it, we are confronted with Christ and how he is the resurrection and the life. Everything hinges upon him. And so with soberness and with great joy, as we peer into your word, would you soften our hearts? Would you convict and stretch us to live according to your word, to glean all that it has in store that we might behold how marvelous 
our Lord and Savior is and how he demonstrates your love. Father, we pray for your help. We ask for your blessing upon your word. Equip the saints, edify and nourish our souls, call the dead to life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if there's anything as stunning and as remarkable as the birth of Jesus Christ, it might be his round two, his second go at it, the resurrection. But have you ever considered what is so significant, so magnificent about resurrection? You know, is it just a unique trick that someone can do? Is it a hot theological topic to debate and discuss with friends? No, as incredible as it is, the main takeaway, at least from our passes, isn't just to be mesmerized by the resurrection, but to be stunned at what it shows us about Jesus Christ. Look, there's no denying resurrection, if you really think about it, is an amazing feat. But it is one component, one element of the story of our passage here. And I want to remind you, resurrection is couched within a larger context, a greater lesson. Glance at verse three. It says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And all that follows, all that Jesus does in response is a reaction to that, including his teaching on resurrection and the miracle of resurrection itself. It is all tied to an expression of Christ's love. That as Jesus performs this divine sign, the glory of the Son of God, the heart of Christ is evident in the various ways he demonstrates and displays the love of God. So that's how we're going to structure our time for tonight. First, we will behold Jesus' love in his teaching. Jesus' love in his teaching. Look again at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their dead brother. So here the autopsy is conclusive. Beyond any shadow of doubt, Lazarus is dead. And by the time Jesus arrived, this man has been rotting away for four days. His sisters are still trying to cope. They're mourning their terrible loss with many others. And in the midst of their grieving, news arrives. Jesus, Jesus is near. Resume in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. As we suspect, Martha is not one who is slow to act. We've encountered her before in the gospel account, or Luke's gospel account. She moves fast, right? Whether to the dishes or to the Lord's destination. And while her sister Mary laments, Martha sneaks out to approach and meet Jesus. And her words 
are poignant, heart-wrenching. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you catch her drift? It's maybe a little passive, aggressive even. Read between the lines and there is a mixture of feelings. On the one hand, frustration. Jesus, if you had been here, but you weren't. And on the other hand, faith. My brother would not have died. He would have lived. And yet as she is wading through the sea of emotion, Martha blurts out what she knows, what she is confident to be true. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's common sense, right? We don't ask someone for something we don't genuinely believe they can give to us. No beggar is begging from another beggar. You and I do not ask our incompetent coworker for help. You don't ask me to cook you a gourmet meal. I'll just buy you Taco Bell, which is up for debate because that is fine dining. But all this to show that requests are only appropriate when directed to the right person, to the diligent colleague or the chef of an upscale restaurant. And here in Martha's statement, we can pick up on an inkling of her faith. Doubt and despair, sure, they cloud her heart, but Martha still believes in Jesus' relationship with God. Whatever you ask, God will give you. Now, even Martha isn't completely sure what she's asking for. But isn't that why we gravitate uh, towards her in the story? In Martha, we have an honest picture of ourselves. We have a person who reflects our own heart. That like her, we often battle against unbelief. We wrestle between what we know to be true and what we feel throbbing in our chest. Our faith is mixed with frustration. God, I know, I know you are sovereign and good. But what are you doing? Where were you when my parents divorced? When my boss unjustly berated me? When the car spun out of control? When my savings account was drained dry? Where were you in my pain and heartache? And oftentimes we conclude, God, God showed up way too late. But pay attention to Jesus' words. This is how he loves in his teaching. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother, your brother will rise again. And it's almost like this flies over Martha's head. She responds in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It sounds like Martha is just dismissing Jesus. Perhaps for the last four days, it's all she's heard from everyone else. It comes off cliche. And Martha's tired of the platitudes, the cheesy Hallmark cards. Jesus, tell me something I don't already know. But the difference is one of timing. Martha is thinking of the last day, Jesus is referring to today, right here, right now. 
verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, verses 25 and 26 contain paradoxical statements that only make sense when we move from the physical to the eternal. In verse 25, the transition is from a physical death to eternal life. In verse 26, the transition is from a physical life that does not end in eternal death. Do you see that in the text? And this is both intentional and essential. Why? Because they address the dire situation Martha and Lazarus find themselves in. A dead in the grave, Jesus is the one Lazarus needs. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Alive but grieving, Jesus is the one Martha needs. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And in his tremendous love for her, Jesus is teaching Martha. Jesus is teaching us. I am the one who possesses power over life and death because they all hinge on me. Friends, death is not the end all the world chalks it up to be. There is more to life than living your days only to wind up in your coffin. According to God's word, for the Christian, there is an eternal resurrection to an eternal life. But notice what comes first. Whoever believes in me, everyone who lives in me, Jesus is laying out the conditions, the requirements, the prerequisites. You must believe and live in him, in his teaching, in what he has communicated and revealed. And this is more than mental assent or knowledge stored in your head. Like Martha, we need to bridge the gap between mind and heart. Will we live by his word or our own wisdom? Will we believe and live in what we can see with our own eyes? Or will we believe and live seeing Jesus Christ through the eyes of faith? that he is the resurrection and the life. So let me ask Praxis, very point blank, how do you fare? Is your life dictated by the influential people who speak into your life? Maybe the money that fills your wallet or the lack thereof, the future plans you've mapped out, the fleeting pleasures you chase after, or is your life dictated, directed, and defined by Christ, by his resurrection and life? Is your life governed by who he has revealed himself to be? You see, resurrection, resurrection presupposes one thing. Resurrection, it's restricted. It is reserved for those who have died. You have to die first to your pride, your intellect, your good deeds, your strength to yourself. And then and only then 
Are you ready to cast yourself fully upon Jesus Christ because you have been depleted of all your resources and abilities, exhausted of all your answers? Then you turn to Christ and trust in him so fully that his death is your death. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Friends, Jesus' love doesn't hide hard truth. He doesn't pretend everything is fine and dandy. He doesn't skirt around difficult subjects like sin and death because he's afraid of hurting your feelings. No, he gives it to you straight. You need to die. But this is love, a love that does not coddle us at the expense of truth, but a love that declares the truth, that reveals the true condition of our warped hearts so that we can experience resurrection and eternal life. And Jesus' question to Martha is aimed at you. Do you believe this? Do you believe and live in him? Martha's answer is quite commendable. Look at verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. More than a moral man or a good teacher, Martha's confession is spot on. It is electric. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God sent into the world. But as firm as her confession is, she's working on conforming her life to it. And we can relate because isn't that all of us? Through her brother's death, God is pushing her knowledge down into her heart. In the trenches of her trials, her theology is being tested and transformed from experimental to experiential. Jesus loves you so much. He wants you to receive and embrace his wonderful teaching even if it means that it must be learned through suffering, through difficulty. But his truth is not devoid of a relationship. It doesn't merely exist in a laboratory for us to study. Jesus now shows us his love in his tenderness. Our second point, Jesus' love in his tenderness. So we've had the theological teaching, the truth given to us, by our Lord and Savior. Now he models it in his tenderness. Pick up in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Jesus stays back while Martha fetches her sister, and he probably wants a private moment with Mary. But once Martha delivers the message, Mary, we discover, she can't contain herself. She causes such a commotion rushing out the door, everyone else is alarmed. Everyone else falls behind. And who are these people in her entourage? Well, back then, according to Jewish funeral custom, everyone was required, even a poor family, to hire at least two flute players 
and a professional wailing woman. Okay, so you made a living by crying. Uh, for emo boys and drama queens, this would have been a nice side hustle. But these people, they were employed, they were paid to create this sad and somber atmosphere. Given Mary and Martha's prestige and wealth, it wouldn't be surprising if they hired a large group. Now we might wonder, okay, does this spoil Jesus' plan? This intimate invitation with Mary interrupted by others, this private moment ruined by public fanfare. No, this is actually all part of his plan. Get this. God sovereignly orchestrates the circumstances to bring about a great crowd, a larger audience so that they might all see the glory of Jesus Christ and how he loves with compassion. The drama builds for us. Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. For four days, Mary and Martha had probably bounced these words back to each other. That's why Mary almost repeats Martha verbatim. Coming before Jesus, Mary exhibits her soul. There's a new dimension to the pain. So while Martha remained composed before our Lord, Mary, Mary is the exact opposite. She is shattered. Her brokenness bends her body. Her desperation drops her to her knees. I mean, Mary loses it. The floodgates spring wide open. Tears are gushing out. Oh, how I love how Jesus loves. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The Jews, those that were hired are weeping, artificially so. Mary is weeping very sincerely. And all this combined has a profound effect upon the Son of God. The word for deeply here conveys the idea of inner groaning, of gasping. It can be used to describe a horse snorting. Jesus' sadness, you see, is loud. You can hear it. This is a window straight into his heart. He is gripped and racked with emotion. The pain is palpable to him. The sorrow of the suffering knocks the wind out of him, if you will. With tenderness, he feels. Why? Well, he's troubled and upset at all that he surveys, the aftermath, the devastating effects of sin. Ironically, Death is alive while Lazarus is dead. And the Bible teaches as sinners, it is a fate none of us can escape. For the wages of sin is death. But listen, sin has not only corrupted our bodies so we die, it has also invaded and infected our hearts, plagued our minds so we 
doubt. Sin not only produces a physical death, it produces a mental doubt that questions God's character, that criticizes and suspects God's promises, challenges his goodness. Like the tragedy of Lazarus' death, we hear of school shootings, sexual abuse, terminal illness, and we're left not only weeping, our hearts are wounded, oftentimes wandering. And in anguish, we can cry out, parents shouldn't have to bury their children. Rape shouldn't be this rampant. Cancer shouldn't rob us of our loved ones. My struggles with depression or same-sex attraction are unending. God, why? This isn't the way things are meant to be. And he agrees. But guess what? Jesus does more than agree. He grieves with us. Look at how deeply Jesus moved. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. As he sees tears streaming down their faces, and Jesus finds his own cheek running wet. The word for weep is actually a different one than the one used for Mary and the Jews. And the nuance is one of expression. Mary and the Jews are boisterous in their mourning. Theirs is a noisy wailing. But Jesus weeping here is different. It's a soft trickle. And I love that picture that the son of God cries quietly. He can't keep these tears from slipping out of his eyes. I mean, it's the image of tenderness. Now I love verse 35, not only because it shows us Jesus emotional, but because of what we can learn about his love through this episode. God's sovereignty, even as we heard last week, God's sovereignty doesn't stymie, doesn't stifle his sympathy. Just because in his infinite wisdom, God knows and ordains everything that will happen, it doesn't mean he is apathetic to it all. It doesn't mean he is a heartless robot. No, if in anything, his sovereignty actually intensifies his feelings. It solidifies his sympathy. Let me illustrate. A dad may be fully aware of his daughter's need for chemotherapy. He may fully understand the ins and outs of this treatment because he's a doctor himself. He might even be the one who plans the appointment and brings his nervous little girl to the hospital. And he knows his vibrant child will be sapped of life the terrible pain she will have to experience. He knows the dangers of radiation. They are absolutely necessary. The only hope for cure. He knows it all. But that doesn't prevent him from feeling, right? No, the depth of his knowledge doesn't hinder him from sympathizing. It is precisely the depth of his knowledge that deepens those feelings. Brothers and sisters, Do you realize 
the infinite capacity of the Son of God only heightens the compassion of the Son of God. There is a weightiness to his tears. Behold how he loves in his tenderness. We don't worship a Savior who is distant and aloof, but one who is near and brimming with love one who can have his heart broken, his eyes shedding tears. And this son of God comes so close, the scripture tells us he becomes one of us, the son of man. He takes on human flesh so he can bear our burdens. Jesus is the sympathetic high priest. Beloved, he petitions today for you. His tears still roll. He weeps over your sin your struggle with anxiety, with pornography, your insecurity with your figure, your discontentment with your singleness or career. He weeps over your doubt, your discouragement when you fail, your hopelessness at ever changing, your unbelief in his forgiveness. He weeps over your death, non-Christian, how your refusal to embrace the resurrection and life leaves you damned in your sin. And he weeps so you'll come. His tenderness tugs you home. Repent and believe, embrace the one who cares for you. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Some see clearly Christ's loving compassion, but others sulk in criticism, skepticism. But we should be wary of measuring his love according to our preconceived notions, to our expectations. The people, they believe if Jesus really loved Lazarus, he would have prevented Lazarus from dying. But what Jesus is about to show is that his love is more than preventative. His love is powerful. It moves past whimpering and a good cry. Jesus' love is exhibited in his triumph. We reach our final point. Jesus' love in his triumph. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, By this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. In the ancient Near East, tombs were primarily horizontal. And so you would essentially lay the corpse in a cave and seal it shut with a large rock. Doesn't seem very smart, maybe a bit barbaric, but that's how they did it back then. They didn't embalm the bodies. They would just bandage the limbs, sprinkle some spices to mask the odor. But we all know from everyday experience, Febreze doesn't last forever. It's a short-term fix. So these spices, they don't really do anything to slow or stop the decay. I mean, today, if you leave me out to thaw and you forget it, what happens? Well, within 24 hours, it is spoiled and smelly, to say the least. This is day four. Day four, can you picture the kind of decomposition 
the skin sags. The muscle is discolored. The body is overrun with bacteria. The flesh is infested and eaten away. And the smell, the smell is atrocious. Yet despite these awful, these repulsive conditions, Jesus has the audacity to say, take away the stone. And Martha, being brilliant, is besides herself, right? Jesus, if you move the stone, you will be moved to tears for a different reason. And yet what Jesus is about to do will be a preview of the power of God's glory. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The glory of God. We throw it out in Christian conversation. It's a big topic in the church, a large word, right? Well, let me ask, what comes into your mind when you think of the glory of God, of the greatest way God could display his glory, his splendor, his majesty to you, the greatest way God could show his love to you? What would you say? Would it be in landing your dream job, marrying up, winning the lotto, being cured from a life-threatening sickness, Would it be in living forever? Maybe that's what we'd say, right? The default Christian answer must be, it's gotta be eternal life. But even that is a bit too simplistic because what does that mean? What is eternal life? Thankfully, the Bible spells it out for us in John 17, three. When Jesus says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, we need a corrective because when it comes to heaven, salvation, and eternal life, many of us are settling. Eternal life is not just perfection from sin and a never-ending duration of time, security, and protection from evil. Sure, that may be part of the package, But listen, what characterizes eternal life the most, what is central to its definition is knowing God and the one he has sent. The focal point, the joy of heaven, the purpose of eternal life is Jesus Christ. He is the linchpin. Eternity is just how long we will celebrate. Heaven is just where we will celebrate. But Jesus, friends, Jesus is why we celebrate. Without Jesus, there is no paradise. Without Jesus, heaven is hell. Praxis, God is the gospel. The good news, the good news is you get him. Eternal life is seeing the glory of God when we come face to face with our Lord and Savior. And we enjoy all of who he is and all that he has done in this life and in the life to come. And that's why it will be eternal because there is always more of Jesus Christ to behold, to appreciate, to know, to praise, and to rejoice in. True glory, true love then, is doing whatever it takes to point you to your greatest good, namely and ultimately God himself. 
And if you believe, you will see the love of God in his glorious triumph, in his victory over our greatest enemy. What Jesus is about to show Martha and all others present is a preview of that promised eternal life. This miracle will be a small crack through which we catch a glimpse of the glory to come. The moment has arrived. Verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Recall Martha's words all the way back in verse 22. Jesus is now asking, and God will surely give. But there's something curious about this interchange, this dialogue, something interesting about all of this. Because prayer, for the most part, is usually communication between the individual and God himself, right? Yet on this occasion, Jesus' public prayer is in some ways to prepare the people present. You might say that the emphasis isn't on the content of Jesus' prayer, but the context of his prayer. Notice Jesus lifts up his eyes and thanks his father so as to direct the attention of the people not towards the grave, but to God alone. Don't focus on the wrong thing. You see, the goal of this miracle isn't entertainment or enchantment. The goal is faith, that you may believe Christ has been sent by God above. Jesus will transform this moment of tragedy into the means of faith. And isn't that what he often does even today? Christians, one of the ways you, you evangelize is by remaining steadfast and firm even when your world is collapsing around you. One of the most powerful ways you testify to the sufficiency and the grace of Jesus Christ is when you still hold fast when stripped of everything else. Whether you're mocked at work for your beliefs or mugged on the street, playing peacemaker in a dysfunctional family, or you're simply wrestling with loneliness, you can look to God. You can lean on his love and you can direct everyone else there as well. Whatever changes you might experience in life, it doesn't change how his triumph will ring true in the end. Your tragedy may seem senseless to you, but trust God's sovereign purposes. God may be working in mysterious yet mighty ways, not only in your life, but through, metaphorically speaking, your life, death, and resurrection to bring others to faith, to showcase the glory of his son and the triumph he brings. And that's what we observe in these verses, that the death of Lazarus is a setup. It will give way not only to his own physical resurrection and life, but more importantly, spiritually, those who would actually witness this event and believe. Let's watch in verse 43. When he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. With just a few words, Jesus commands Lazarus to come forth. And the crazy thing is, he does. He does exactly that. To vividly portray the miraculous nature of this sign, Lazarus is described with detail. He shuffles forth swamped in strips of old bedsheets. His face is just plastered with tattered cloth. No longer sleeping in the tomb, Lazarus, he's awakening. And with each step, the bandages are unraveling. With each step, Lazarus inches forward out of the darkness and into the light, into new life. With each step, it is becoming more and more apparent. He's alive. Lazarus has been resurrected. Now, how are we to respond? Are we to be silenced in amazement? Are we to be shocked by the supernatural? Have you ever wondered when reading this chapter, why all the theatrics? I mean, just consider Jesus knowing very well who he is and what he is capable of. Jesus could have resurrected Lazarus from afar without ever stepping foot into Bethany. He could have restored Lazarus to life by softly whispering, live. He could have avoided the crowds, performed the miracle quickly and secretly. I don't know, maybe do like a miracle drive-by or something like that. But what actually transpires in our story? Jesus comes. He comes to Bethany, teaches Martha, stirs up the crowd, weeps with Mary, makes his prayer audible, cries out loud, calls Lazarus forth. Why all this action? Why all this drama? Friends, it's to hit our hearts, to call us forth, to engage us, to show us visibly and tangibly that he loves us. The people, the people see the tears trickling down Jesus' eyes and they say, see how Jesus loved him. But Lazarus comes forth from the grave and it's as if God announces from a megaphone, no, this, this is how I love you. You see, we think Jesus loves us when he makes us rich, solves our problems, gives us a new house, spares us of pain. Beloved, no, Jesus loves us by giving us a life that cannot be defeated by death. Jesus loves us by giving us the ability to be with him forever. And he loves us so much, dying on the cross, being buried in the grave, cannot keep him from his own people. And so he resurrects. And he raises those who believe and live and love him to do the same. Jesus pays the penalty of sin so we won't remain in the tomb, but we resurrect to eternal life with him. And Lazarus' resurrection is preview and proof of it. 
that God triumphantly shouts his love for us through the walls of the grave when by his word, he raises our dead hearts and makes us alive in Jesus Christ. Indeed, verse four has come to completion. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son may be glorified through it so that you may believe he is the resurrection and the life and have him as your resurrection, your life. Praxis, see how he loves. Look to him, look forward to him and allow that goal to shape your trajectory the direction you're heading in. Revelation 21.4 says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But did you hear that? Jesus will wipe away every tear. See, in heaven, there will still be tears. But before the Son of God, I surmise there will no longer be tears because of sin. There will be tears of joy that all is right, that death and doubt will be no more, only resurrection and life. Beloved, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he loves us in his grand teaching, in his heartfelt tenderness, and in his indomitable triumph. Let's pray. God, we often have such small and wrong conceptions of what love is. And we need your help to calibrate our minds, to orient our hearts under the teaching of your word as we behold the love of Christ in how he reveals to us the truth. How the gospel is good news, but before it ever becomes that, it is bad news by confronting us of our death, that we are dead in our sins. And yet, even as we have studied in this passage, you have shown that is not the end of the story. But by your son, he offers resurrection and life for those who would believe and live in him. God, may we marvel at the majesty and splendor of our Lord and Savior. May we be enamored with how he loves weak vessels, clay pots, sinful beings, and yet those you have called and redeemed. We pray that we would fix our gaze upon him, that as we behold his glory, we become more and more like him in how we love you and love one another. May that characterize our fellowship group, that we would be a people created by and created for uh, your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.